Welcome to the Climate Finance Podcast. My name is Jonas, and this podcast aims to mainstream climate finance by interviewing high-level investors, researchers, and policymakers who have made significant contributions to the climate finance space. Please note that this podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered as investment advice. Enjoy the episode. Before commencing this podcast interview, we apologize for the audio quality. We hope that this does not cause any inconvenience. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everyone. Welcome back to the Climate Finance Podcast. Today's guest is Bruce Usher. Bruce Usher is a professor at Columbia Business School. He is the author of Investing in the Era of Climate Change, published in 2022, and Renewable Energy, a Primer for the 21st Century, published in 2019. Apart from his teaching and research activities, he is an advisor and investor in multiple climate tech startups and investment funds. So good morning, Professor. How's it going in New York? Oh, very well. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me on the podcast. It's an honor to have you on the podcast. I read both your books and I really enjoyed it. Whilst I was researching for this interview, I was very interested to look at your career transition and I could divide it into two main transitions. So for the first transition, I'm interested in how your career evolved from structuring financial products for American and Japanese institutional investors to becoming CEO of EcoSecurities, which is focused more on the developing countries. It was actually a two-step process. So as you mentioned, I was initially working in finance for many years in Tokyo and in New York. At some point, I wanted to become an entrepreneur. So I joined a colleague of mine who was working in banking at the time, uh, who'd started what we call financial boutique. So a very, very small financial firm. So I joined him and helped him grow that. That was in the mid-90s. So we grew that to a decent sized financial firm. And then with his backing, I started a second financial company. It's almost more around electronic trading. So I became an entrepreneur. Well, that second company was acquired by a big firm. So I then I decided what I wanted to do next. And I still wanted to be an entrepreneur. I wanted to do a third entrepreneurial venture. And that's when I was introduced to this concept of uh, carbon credits and investing in developing countries and the whole topic of climate change. I did not have an environmental background. I was not well aware of the situation. So in early 2000s, as I started to talk to people for a third venture, I was introduced to the founders of this company called EcoSecurities which was very small at the time and invested in climate mitigation projects in developing countries as part of the Kyoto Protocol. And the objective was to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and generate carbon credits as part of the business model. So because I had entrepreneurial experience and financial experience, I was a good fit. What I didn't know at the time, and honestly, I was a little surprised, was how applicable financial experience and financial tools was to environmental problem like climate change. I actually thought these two things were very different. And uh, it was only after I joined the securities that I learned that, in fact, using financial skills can really have a huge impact. Awesome. And uh, so uh, how did you decide to leave EcoSecurities and then transition to academia, teaching, researching, and advising startups and investment funds? So as I mentioned, I was an entrepreneur several times. EcoSecurities is the third time I was an entrepreneur. The entrepreneur experience is both exciting and it's hard. It's really hard. So EcoSecurities grew very rapidly. We went from a handful of people when I joined in 2002, public in 2005, a lot of stock exchange. And by 2009, we actually taken over. We were acquired by JP Morgan. At that point, I decided to step down from the business. It was a very successful outcome. And I just needed a change after three entrepreneurial ventures over time to try something at a different pace, let's say. And I was very fortunate because I had the opportunity to 
teach at Columbia and Columbia Business School, and ultimately to transition into academia. And from my perspective, I think being an entrepreneur is, is a great experience. It's also a way to have real impact. But in some ways, being an academic have real impact too, partly because I can teach, I teach about 500 business school students a year. So many of them go off to, to build successful enterprises. And I think that's really important. And of course, I can also write and research and have impact that way. Awesome. So if I'm not mistaken, you joined Columbia Business School in 2010, and then you published your first book in 2019. So could you delve more into, let's say, your intellectual experience over those nine years and what led you to publish that book? The first thing you can see is you know, I'm a slow writer, right? <laughs> joined Columbia in 2010. I didn't, didn't publish the first book in 2019. No, there was a slow transition in the sense that for a number of years, I wasn't sure whether I would stay in academia full time or whether I would go back into the business sector where I had all my experience. And around, I think it was 2015, I made the decision to become a full-time faculty member. Why did I write the Renewable Energy book, the book that was published in 2019? It was actually a very simple story, which was I was visiting a friend who had installed solar panels on her roof. She's actually an artist, so she has a large workspace and she's put a nice large array of panels on the roof. And she had a number of us over, a bunch of friends visiting her studio, and we were looking at her panels. And another mutual friend was saying to me, you know, this is all very nice, but, you know, of course, this wouldn't exist. We're not the government subsidies. You know, renewable energy is, is, is never profitable. No one will ever make money on renewable energy. And I remember thinking to myself, this is a very smart, intelligent person, and highly educated, and he's completely unaware of what's going on in renewable which those in the sector know is that the cost has come down so dramatically and the scale has gone up so rapidly that today it is the cheapest form of power in many parts of the world and will, within a few decades, dominate the global power system and most of our power will be from wind and solar. And dawn on me that the vast majority of people are unaware of that. They just they don't know what's going on in the sector. So that's why I wrote the book to, to educate people, you know, sort of a general audience on what's what's the transition that's going on in the power sector with renewable. So after publishing that book in 2019, you came up with a new book in 2022, and that's going to be the main focus for this podcast, which is focusing on investing in the climate change era. So could you talk about that transition to the second book and what was the impetus for writing that book? In some ways, it's a similar story, but much broader. In other words, what I felt really around 2020, 2021 was that there was a wide misunderstanding of what's going on when it comes to climate change investing and the decarbonization of global economy. Specifically, there's an awful lot of information out there on what's not being done and what needs to be done to avoid catastrophic climate change. And you know, just to recap, I think probably your listeners know this, but you know, we have to get to net zero by roughly 2050s. So we have about 30 years to decarbonize the entire global economy. This is an enormous challenge. There's no question about that. And not nearly enough is being done today. There's no question about that as well. What I think is less well known is that is what is being done specifically with respect to investment. And it's not a simple story. It's actually much more complex than the renewable energy story. It's the renewable energy is a piece of that story. And the reason it's more complex is there are several trends driving this the rapid increase in investment. There are many strategies that investors use. In the book I particularly point out five very different strategies investors use to put capital to work. And there are many different climate solutions, products, technologies that investors are putting capital into through different investment vehicles, whether it's a venture capital or private equity or public equity markets fixed and so on. So there's a lot of pieces to the story, a lot of chapters to this book. But again, I felt that it was just not well understood among anyone except those who are actually 
in the industry today. And in fact, even those who work on climate change today, I think it's not well understood unless you're actually investing capital today for active sectors. People don't do have a good sense of what's going on. So that's why I wrote the book. I agree with you. And we have a long way to go into disseminating all this information so that everyone in the climate community and the non-climate community can understand what's going on. But as you mentioned, there are five investment strategies. And if we can start with the first one, risk mitigation. So why did you start with that as your number one strategy in the book? Yes, I started, not because it's necessarily the best strategy. I actually think it's not terribly important to address on climate change, but because the one that people think of first, because you think of climate change, you think of risk, particularly people think of physical risk, you know, the world is warming and some serious changes are occurring. And so as investors sort of think of risk mitigation, how do you avoid risk things from, say, you know, rising seas affecting real estate values, policy changes that affect businesses and market changes and so on. So I think the risk mitigation first, because I think that's how many investors initially think about climate change. Awesome. And then you moved on to divestment. So why was that the second strategy you mentioned? Yeah, that's a bit of a chronological thing, because the divestment movement has been around now. It builds on a movement to divest that goes back way back 1970s, the divest assets in South Africa and apartheid there and so and that strategy was replicated for climate change and essentially divest assets from fossil fuel companies. So it's been around for quite a while. It's also a relatively, let's say, simple strategy. It's pretty clear. You either, you know, you are not investing in fossil fuel-based companies. Where it gets complex complex is what does that really mean in practice? And more importantly, what impact does that have on climate change? And while it's a very popular strategy around some investors, you know, the impact is actually pretty minimal on investing climate change. So I felt that was the next strategy. Yeah, at that end of the chapter focused on divestment, if I can paraphrase you, you mentioned that it may fail to increase capital to companies tackling climate change. And as a next step or as a next section of that chapter, you focused on ESG investing. So why ESG investing? No, ESG again, so it's, you know, divestment is not investing, but ultimately we have to invest. So it's sort of the natural next step. And in some ways, ESG both builds on that, but also builds on the first chapter in the investment side, which is risk management. So ESG also has a risk management element to it. I think ESG, which has become quite controversial in the past year or two, is actually at its heart a relatively simple concept, right? The concept of ESG is when you look at investing in an asset, you consider all sorts of factors that typical investor will look at, you know, financial numbers, they'll look at quality of management, they'll look at competition, you know, you take what sort of things you think about. Well, all ESG says is when you're looking at all those factors, there's a couple of additional factors you need to consider. Environmental factors like climate change. How is climate change going to affect this potential asset, make it more valuable, less valuable? You know, what are the risk factors and so on? And include that in the analysis. So that form of investing, ESG investing, has become extremely popular. And it's become extremely popular for a number of reasons. I delve into that in the book. But the two reasons are ESG investing, like we're all investing, is, is really about understanding trends. And the macro trend we face today as humanity is climate change. Right? Climate change is very real. It's going to play out for many, many, many decades, well past my lifetime. And it's going to affect all business and all investing and, and all human life to a certain extent, to a greater or lesser degree, depending on what actions we take. Well, if you're an investor, yeah, that's sort of a trend you should be thinking about pretty seriously. Investment is not the only thing you need to think about. You need to think about all the other basic, you know, investment tools that you need at your hand. But ESGs is a macro trend. You need to consider that. 
And the second reason it's become very popular is it, it seems to be a smart form of investing. It's simply, you know, just makes a lot of sense in this modern world we live in to consider these factors. So that's the third strategy. Awesome. What I liked in that chapter also, is you mentioned this concept of the ESG positive feedback loop and also going beyond research and focusing on activism. Yeah. So let's say the remaining two chapters of that section of the book is focused on impact investing. And you had two forms of impact investing. You had the thematic uh, impact investing, and then you had impact first investing. Some that's people right. may mix them two up, but could you differentiate them? And you also had some interesting case studies on both of them. Yeah, thanks. Thank you for that. So first of all, you know, terminology in the books tries to be really clear about this terminology but it gets mixed up all the time, right? Some people say ESG investing is the type of impact investing. You know, this happens, it's very common. But the way I, and how I frame it, thematic impact investing is when an investor says, look, there is a theme that I'm going to follow in my investments. And I'm going to do that because I think I can get generated an attractive financial return. Obviously, I'm, when I say return, I mean a risk-adjusted return. And it's going to have direct impact on that sector. So when we talk about climate change, there are a number of themes one can invest in. And the most common one today is, is renewable energy. So if you say quite simply, I see a theme here. <laughs> we have climate change, we're going to see car as a global economy, renewable energy specifically, wind and solar are going to be a huge part of that decarbonization. I'm going to invest in those sectors. And the impact part of it is that by investing in those sectors, you're putting capital directly into decarbonization solutions. So the first three strategies, risk management, divestment in ESG. Actually, none of those direct capital, you know, specifically into climate solutions, directly into mitigation and decarbonization, as we call it. Thematic does, you're putting capital directly into these solutions. And so in that sense, it's both a very targeted strategy and an impactful strategy. And from a financial return perspective, Thematic investors, some of them have done very well because they've chosen sectors that have grown very rapidly, you know, like renewable energy or electric vehicles. And some of those investments have done very well. So that's the fourth strategy. Impact first is similar but different. <laughs> and the, here's the difference. There are a number of sectors that say low risk way of investing, solar and wind projects are very stable, the technology is well known, they understand that sector very well. So for investors, very nice fit. But there are some sectors today, from technologies today, that are pretty new. The technology may still be unproven or unproven at scale, or maybe the technology is pretty solid, but the commercial viability just isn't there. It's too costly. And a good example of that would be green hydrogen, which is producing hydrogen using renewable energy. Now, these sectors or these technologies, tremendous potential for helping us decarbonize global economy. They can be a really important part of the solution, but they're not investable today in the sense that an investor who's seeking risk adjusted market returns, in other words, not willing to give up financial return, is unlikely to be able to invest in these technologies in these sectors. They're just too risky, maybe too long-term. It may take several decades to get a return on your investment. And anyone who manages other people's money, these are called fiduciaries, you know, essentially asset managers, they're prohibited from investing in these areas because they're legally obligated as fiduciaries to seek out the best risk-adjusted returns. So it turns out there's a number of areas which cannot get to core investment. Well, there are a group of investors. These are these impact-first investors, we call them, who follow the strategy. Uh, and these 
are almost always very wealthy individuals or foundations or family offices who manage the money of very, very wealthy people. Why do they do this? Well, first of all, because legally they can't. Very wealthy people can do whatever they want with their money. If they wish to do, to put it to work by investing in something that's very risky or very long-term or, you know, it's their capital so they can do it. And secondly, because some of them are really motivated by impact. They really want to make a significant difference. And the thing about impact versus investing is targeting those niches that don't have the capital today because the a typical investor can't put capital there, but have tremendous potential for depowering the global economy. So I mentioned green hydrogen, director capture would be another example of that. These are areas that really need investment. For a little moment, let's move on to the next section of your book, which is investing in financial assets. And you mentioned several asset classes, but we'll only cover three for this conversation. The first one is on public equities. And in public equities, you mentioned the challenges of net zero pledges by public companies. So could you delve into that, please? So investors did well notice that increasingly public companies, large companies in particular, are making net zero pledge. A net zero pledge is simply when a company promises that it will reduce its greenhouse gas emissions to zero or more specifically net zero. In other words, any emissions that still has will be offset with carbon credits or negative emissions somewhere else by a certain date. And most companies are pledging for 2050 because that's what the climate scientists tell us that we need to get to net zero around 2050. So that's the pledge. So on the one hand, this is tremendous. I mean, this is what climate scientists inform us you need to do. Most greenhouse gas emissions in the world today are a result of business activity. So when you have businesses stepping up and saying, we're going to reduce to, to net zero by 2050, we're all aligned decarbonized global economy. That's good. And as an investor, you want to invest in companies that are going to have long-term sustainability, both financially and operationally. And in the long term, we need to reduce to net zero. So this all makes sense. Problem is, it turns out to be a lot harder than it sounds. And the first issue is, for many companies, of course, how do you reduce emissions to net zero? For some of them, it's relatively straightforward. They use a lot of electricity, say, for example, Microsoft, a lot of data centers. You know, they can replace that with renewable energy. And that's, in fact, what they're doing today. And they reduce emissions a great deal. But for other industries, say a steel company, for example, there's no easy way with current technologies to reduce emissions to significant. So the first issue is, just because a company makes a promise or pledge, what is this path to actually reducing emissions? How viable are those and how competitive is the company if it reduces its emissions? That's, that's one issue. A second big complication is around what emissions is the company responsible for? So for those people who focus on climate change, we categorize emissions in what we call three scopes, scope one, two, and three. Scope one is the company's own emissions. Okay, that makes sense. They're responsible for those emissions. Scope two is the electricity that company receives from someone else, say a utility or heating. And this is a little more difficult to control, of course, because outside of the company's you know, boundaries. But in many cases, companies are able to negotiate you know, and, and finance renewable energy and make that happen. The real challenge is what's called scope three emissions. Scope three is two types, upstream emissions. In other words, in a company's supply chain, that supply chain is emitting greenhouse gases and is the company that we're talking about here that you're looking at investing in, is it responsible for those supply chain emissions? And many people would say, yes, it is. It's buying those products, so it needs to be responsible. And then there's downstream scope three emissions, which is the emission as a result of consumers using your product. And again, there's debate as to whether or not a company should be responsible for that. Their product is being used. On the other hand, consumers that are using the product. <laughs> it's hard to control consumers. And then 
the complication related scope one, two, and three is not just who's responsible and who can control that, but an issue of double counting. So, you know, an example would be, let's say, American Airlines. Well, American Airlines uses jet fuel to fly those planes. That jet fuel is produced, say, by Exxon. So for Exxon and producing that jet fuel, that's scope one. But selling the jet fuel to American Airlines, that's now scope three. When Air, American Airlines burning those that fuel is, is scope one, but consumers are the ones who fly on those planes. So that's scope three. For the consumers, it's their scope one, essentially, although they're passively burning their fuel. But so, so who's responsible for that? If Exxon didn't produce the fuel, there'd be no emissions, but there'd be no flights. If the American Airlines said, huh, there'd be no emissions, no flights. And if we as consumers didn't buy those airline tickets, there wouldn't be the emissions either. So this gets a little bit complex and messy. And for investors, they need to sort of understand what these net zero pledges mean and how realistic is a company that can fulfill its net zero pledge uh, in a competitive manner. The other challenge of net zero, just to touch on, is the issue of carbon credits. So for many companies, they're going to use, they are, some are already using, and many will use carbon credits to offset their emissions. They do this for one or two reasons, either because it's simply much cheaper. Carbon credit might be a lot less costly than reducing emissions internally, or because there's simply cannot reduce, and perhaps there's no way to reduce. There's no technology out there that allows them to reduce emissions. And in fact, to get to zero, you think about this for a minute, you know, net zero. Zero is a hard number, right? Everything we do as humans and there's some some greenhouse gas that getting to zero is going to require most companies to use some carbon credits. The problem is the carbon credit market today is, is rife with all sorts of challenges. And we could do a whole hour discussion around that. But essentially around environmental integrity, in other words, other carbon credits really offset greenhouse gas emissions. And therefore, should they really allow a company to therefore emit? And there are very few carbon credits today. We can say absolutely certainly those credits are truly reducing emissions, what we call additional what's going on today. Proving additionality is a very challenging issue when it comes to carbon credits. So these, these are the issues around the net zero pledges. The pledges themselves are very simple, really good things. Actually fulfilling them turns out to be pretty pretty complex. Complex indeed. Let's move on. The public equities chapter is picking winners, basically incumbents versus disruptors, right? You had a case study of Tesla versus GM, but you also had a discussion on how some incumbents like Next Era or Occidental Petroleum have capabilities, but disruptors like Beyond Meat and Tesla, they also have some advantages. And so each incumbent and disruptor has advantage, disadvantage. Could you delve into that, please? So climate change and the decarbonization of the global economy is going to result in all sorts of changes among every business sector. We talked about that a few minutes ago. Well, as sectors change, competitive dynamics change, you'll see some companies becoming what I write as winners and other companies becoming losers. And this is a natural evolution economy anyway. Maybe you can think about it. historically companies like Kodak was a big winner for many years and then got disrupted by digital photography and eventually things like the iPhone and it's now a loser. I can go on and on these examples. Well, with climate change, it's interesting because it's not clear who's going to be I'm the winner and the loser, the incumbents or these disruptive companies. And Tesla, of course, is a fascinating story because it was a disruptive it was the first successful automobile company in America since Second World War, you know, more than 70 years ago. And it managed to disrupt the entire global industry that's extremely competitive and very successful. And what was interesting about Tesla's product was that the technology was not unique to Tesla. Any automobile company really could have developed the electric vehicle that Tesla did. I mean, 
they had some pretty sophisticated software and design in there, but the lithium ion batteries that underpin it and obviously the electric motor were, you know, widely understood and known. So there's certain factors in the automobile industry that made that allow a 10 year lead for every other company. And that basic factor is that large incumbent companies have very poor organizational change. So even if they can see that there's a risk from a disruptor, even if they can see that technologies understand them, as organizations, it's very hard for them to change. It's very hard for them to cannibalize their incumbent business. And so Tesla sometimes are able to overtake them. But then there's other sectors where you'd think a nimble disruptor would come in and win the day as, as Tesla has done. And in those sectors, particularly those where there are a lot of complex policy environments, the disruptor can really struggle. And that's why I use the example of Next Era. Next Era was a utility based in Florida, literally utility called Florida Power and Light, not a particularly exciting company. And it started to see these solar companies pop up and, and all these trends around decarbonization and growth renewable energy. And he began to invest in that sector very aggressively. Well, fast forward to today, Nextera is the largest owner of renewable energy assets across America. And in doing so, it has very aggressively competed against these smaller disruptors, companies like Sun Edison, which for a moment were really hugely popular in the markets, but eventually went bankrupt, actually. Nextera has low-cost capital in Nextera. In regulated markets, which all electricity markets, energy markets have a fair bit of regulation, it really knows how to compete. That's a game that knows how to play really well. And so it is now the largest renewable energy assets. It is also in that process become the most valuable utility company in America, possibly the world today. It's done extremely well. So you see different stories. One can't just automatically say, well, climate change, I mean, these new disruptive companies, these technologies, they're going to dominate. It depends on which subsector you're looking to, you'll see different outcomes. Thank you. Now let's move on to, let's say, the private markets. And if we can start off with venture capital. So we just had the discussion about incumbents versus disruptors, but there are a lot of new players as we transition from, let's say, clean tech venture capital to climate tech venture capital. So could you talk about these new entrants in the space? You previously mentioned one of them, Microsoft, in your example about net zero pledges, but also what are their, let's say, risk-reward perceptions? Yeah. So clean tech was the term we used, you know, 15 years ago, we looked at venture capital investing for client solutions, and it did very poorly. The returns were terrible. Well, now what we call climate tech, it's really the same thing. I mean, investing in early stage companies and technologies that mostly focus on decarbonization, mitigating climate change, has become a much, much bigger sector in the last four or five years. You see a lot more capital flowing into that. And the type of capital is quite different. So you mentioned one, one type of capital, which is corporate venture capital. So why do companies invest in, you know, companies aren't normally who you think of as venture capital investors. Those are specialized investors. Why would a company do this? And company does this for two really good reasons. The first reason is what we discussed a few minutes ago, net zero pledges. If you're Microsoft, you made a pledge to go to net zero, which Microsoft has, by the way, a very, very aggressive pledge to reduce emissions. Their pledge, in fact, is, is pretty fascinating. It's not just to get to net zero, but they also pledge to remove all the emissions since the founding of Microsoft in 1970. So all the CO2 that's put in the atmosphere over uh, you know, 40, 50 years now, it's been, they pledge to remove that from the atmosphere, which is a very, very aggressive pledge. Well, Microsoft, there are certain technologies out there like renewables, which it, it can just you know, buy or finance, that's pretty straightforward. But there's no technologies that it needs 
to fulfill its pledge. And so the reason it does this venture investing is to finance technologies like what we call direct air capture, which are really sophisticated technologies today, not yet commercial or at scale. Microsoft and other companies are investing in them to help meet their net zero pledges. Pretty good reason for that. And the second reason is to invest in these technologies to defend their businesses. So we talked a few minutes ago about how public companies are going to be winners and losers. And some of these companies are looking at what's going on and saying, we need to be the forefront investing in early stage technology so that they're going to position us competitively going forward, giving us the best chance to be that winner. After those technologies become commercial, we want to be on top of that, benefit from that. So you, you see that that's also a big driver for these earlier stage investments in these technologies. You see companies like Amazon, for example, investing in this sector. You see utilities investing in long-term energy storage, which is very leading edge today and looking at that and so on. You see oil and gas companies whose businesses are obviously under tremendous threat from climate change with good reason. I've seen things like green hydrogen, which is a business they have not been in until recently, but they see that as potentially a big business in the future and investing early in that. Lastly, when it comes to private markets, we, we cannot forget private equity. And in your book, you mentioned the several large private equity firms that are moving into ESG, partially due to motivations from the limited partners. And some of them are trying to set up infrastructure funds. So could you delve into that a little bit? So private equity is looking at from a couple of angles. One is just, you know, cost savings and efficiency. You know, private equity, when they acquire a company, the first thing to look at is how do you reduce costs, right? How do you how do you squeeze out costs? And what people find is things like energy efficiency can be a real cost saving measure. The second reason they look into is private equity often has to invest large sums of capital, many billions of dollars. And what they find is large infrastructure projects are well suited for this. Projects that are very, very large capital requirements, relatively stable returns over a long period of time. So those are the infrastructure investments can be a good fit for private equity. Those are the two strategies that they're mostly focused on. The challenge for private equity is that some of these Sectors like renewable energy have become so successful, the returns are now fairly low for private equity. And they're low for good reason, because the risk is very low. And so private equity is, is sometimes a little bit challenged to find right returns. Thank you. So let's move on to the role of government policy when it comes to investing in real assets. I'd be curious to know your thoughts about the Infrastructure Investment Act and the Inflation Reduction Act. These acts are really, really a big deal. And people have read about that in the media, but I think this is a case where the media maybe is underemphasized. You know, the media tends to sort of exaggerate the uh, situations. And I think in this case, maybe they actually have under underestimated the impact of these. And the reason for that is the act is both very broad. It covers many technologies and sectors of the U.S. economy. The act is very large. It's you know, together that's about a half a trillion dollars. And very long term, the acts are also likely to stay in place. Of course, we don't know. Predicting politics, of course, is a foolish thing to do. But these acts are likely to stay in place because the benefits are widely shared across the country. In fact, if anything, the amount of capital as a result of these acts and the amount of business activity is flowing more into Republican states than than Democrat-led states. And the reason for that is that's where a lot of these manufacturing plants and projects can be built. So what really matters here is that the acts are designed to channel subsidies to sectors to unlock commercial capital. So you know, a simple example of that would be in, in solar, there's a number of incentives that makes building solar even more competitive than it already is against fossil fuels. 
So you have a sector that was already growing pretty quickly, already very competitive, and now you've just made it that much more competitive. It's going to grow leaps and bounds faster. Same with electric vehicles. Electric vehicle market is growing dramatically, but its percentage of new car sales is still well below 10% new car sales. In fact, it's really low single digits. Those subsidies will make electric vehicles with a price parity with internal combustion engine. In other words, a big challenge for electric vehicle sales is when the consumer walks into a showroom and looks at, you know, buying a car and the sticker price of that new electric vehicle is higher than general combustion engine. Now, the consumer may even know that all the lifetime of that vehicle is going to save money because fueling it up is much cheaper. But it's pretty hard to spend a large, you know, great deal more money up front, especially with technology that are less familiar. Well, with the subsidies from the Inflation Reduction Act, that electric vehicle is going to likely have price parity. So you walk in, you won't pay anything. And you know that the day you walk out with that car, you don't have to go to a gas station and pay for it $5 a gallon for gas. It's cheaper to fuel it up. So these acts that the administration has passed are going to unlock a lot of commercial activity, a lot of business activity, and a lot of investment, commercial investment to back it up. I think we'll see some fair dramatic change in the next couple of years as a result of those acts. Yeah, awesome. And there's so many types of public policies that you mentioned in the book that maybe this could be your third book, which is focusing on climate policy. So if you perhaps well, I'm not I'm not an expert on climate policy. I really, really focus on more business stuff like that. I appreciate but, that suggestion. Yeah. <laughs> if we could finish off the policy discussion on your thoughts about having a carbon price. I liked in the book that you mentioned a quote from Darren Woods, who in 2021, as ExxonMobil CEO, mentioned that carbon pricing would send a clear signal through the market and create incentives to reduce emissions, despite them ExxonMobil spending years lobbying against that. So what are your thoughts about this? Yeah. A carbon price would be extremely helpful in decarbonizing the global economy because you know the underlying problem with climate change is what we call negative externality, or economists call negative externality. In other words, climate change is a result of greenhouse gases being pumped into the atmosphere. They're sent to the atmosphere because the polluters, which is as I mentioned, every business and frankly, most of us as consumers, we don't have to pay for that. And so since we don't have to pay for it, we just do it without thinking about it. There's no incentive. Frankly, there's just no incentive not to pollute. So putting a price on carbon means that you now pay to pollute. Doesn't mean people won't. It's not a solution to climate change, but it's a helpful piece of the puzzle because once you put that price on it, then people's willingness to pollute goes down and less of a steep ways to stop polluting and so on. Now, why would an oil and gas company like Exxon or others, you know, many of these companies are in favor of, of a carbon price? Because it allows them to plan further ahead in their business. If they know that a carbon price, what that carbon price is, and even if that price perhaps is going up over time, because in fact, that's what you want to do for climate change. You want to start trade a low price for each year, make it more and more expensive to pollute if we try to drive down emissions. For companies like Exxon, which have to make long-term investment decisions, we're talking, you know, 10, 20, 30-year investment decisions. If they know what that additional cost is, to producing and selling their product, they can then make those investment decisions. So it's a pretty effective tool, both from reducing emissions and for businesses to operate in a world of decarbonization. The problem with putting a price on emissions or a price on carbon, we call it, first of all, there's the policy component. I mean, it has a bill in Congress that does this. You know, American economic policy is mostly designed to provide 
what we call carrots to industry as opposed to sticks. In other words, we're much more inclined to offer subsidies than we are to put in place taxes. And the price on carbon, I guess, you know, carbon tax or cap and trades, this is a similar thing, really. This is very hard to do politically. That's the first problem. And the second problem is if you do put this in place, how do you, in a way that's fair both to the companies that have the price and to consumers? And let me give you two examples. So for companies, you can say, well, you know, okay, it doesn't matter. That's, that's their problem. But for companies that operate in global markets, say a company in steel business, well, if you tax carbon from steel produced in one country, say the U.S., but nowhere else in the world, well, that puts U.S. steel producers at a great disadvantage because steel is priced globally. Steel is cheaper to produce and ship from Korea or China than in the U.S. That's the steel that you know, people buy here. And so that's a big problem. How do you adjust for that? And in Europe, they're putting tariffs around carbon pricing. That's how they're dealing with it, which I think will work, but it's very complex and create some other issues. So that's the one issue from the business side. How do you do this in a way that doesn't you know, damage or potentially destroy certain industries? And then from the consumer part of it, how do you do it in an equitable way? So you know, for some consumers, putting a price on carbon can really raise the price of their day-to-day -day living and put a lot of pressure on them. And the example there is a few years ago in France, the government there Essentially, a de facto price in carbon by increasing the price on gasoline that drivers would use. And the reason was to make gas more expensive, so people use less. In other words, to put a price of carbon on gasoline, which makes perfect sense from an economic perspective and from a climate change perspective, reduce emissions. But it sparked an enormous wave of protests called the Gilets Jaunes protest. Uh, I'm sure you're familiar with that, you call that. And that was simply people, you know, many of whom were less well off. Perhaps livelihood, say, or truck drivers or, or tax drivers or, you know, livelihood required purchase of gasoline. And, you know, they were they were really hurt by this policy. And maybe they understood the need to address climate change, but that policy fell un unduly on their shoulder. And so this is the other challenge is just because we price carbon doesn't mean it's equitably shared. Thank you, Professor. I've really enjoyed this interview so far. So we're now reaching near the end. And I like to ask questions where you give advice to the audience of this podcast. So I have two questions. One is advice to prospective investors who want to invest in climate. You have a particular section in your book called The Investor's Dilemma and one chapter in that called Best Practices. So could you give a quick overview of that chapter without any spoilers? Yeah. Sure, happy to do so. And I'm going to just mention two things because there's a bunch of topics I have in that chapter, but two, two quick things I think investors can be aware of. I'm not saying the obvious. The, the first is is just taking a long-term perspective, right? So, and this is hard, but investors are often, you know, the short term is what we think about day to day. And climate change is a long-term trend. So the obvious challenge this year has been the increase in oil and gas prices in the past year means that investment in oil and gas companies has been really profitable since the last year. And so anybody who, you know, if they can set a longer-term perspective, would probably not be investing in oil and gas companies. It doesn't make sense to do that because it's a declining market. But in this past year, of course, people did invest made a lot of money. And so it's sort of hard to keep your take your eye off the ball of that long-term trend. What I will say in the oil and gas story is significant gains for oil and gas companies this year were not a result of increasing demand for their product, or it's not like they invented a new oil and gas product. It was a result of an exogenous event, a terrible event, which is a war in Ukraine. 
And you know, I don't think any investors saw it coming. Frankly, it's just a just a fluke perspective on gas sector and there's so much more profitable. So the first thing I would say is, you know, stand focus on the long term, not the short term. And the second is the issue of greenwashing. So as investors, sometimes it's hard to avoid this topic. A lot of the companies that investors are looking at, you know, putting capital into are making all sorts of great promises about decarbonization. And I think that's good. We talked about that, the zero pledges. But some companies are promising a lot more than they expect or are willing or capable of actually doing. And this is a problem because if a company makes a promise and then it doesn't come anywhere close to fulfilling that promise, it's likely not going to turn out well. Consumers might be upset, employees would be upset, regulators may not be too happy with that either. And so there's all sorts of ways that greenwashing can sort of come back to hurt a company and ultimately the investors in those companies. So that's my basic advice. And the last question here is personal advice to the next generations. This was one of my motivations for starting the podcast. And I want to know what would you advise the next generations of investors, students, especially those that sit in your class every day? It's very simple, really, which is when I was graduating business school, so this is 30 years ago, if someone had given me advice at that point, what I hoped I would have heard looking back would be if someone said to me, Bruce, understand clearly the impact that technology, specifically data technology, will have on the world of business and investing for the next 30 years, that if you know that and think really clearly about that, you will do very well in your career. We all know the importance of data technology, this podcast, everything now is driven by technologies. Well, what I would want people to hear today is what is going to drive business investment for the next 30 years is climate change. Technology, data technology, and all sorts of other trends are still obviously going to be very important to the worlds of business and investing. But now we have this new thing. And when I say new, in the sense, the next 30 years are really going to be critical. But we are going to decarbonize the world's global economies. It may happen quickly, in which case that would be a really good outcome. It may happen really slowly and then very dramatically. It may have, it may not if we're too slow with this. But it, one way or the other, it will happen. It will be on our own or it will be forced upon us by the physics of climate change. That's my advice to younger people today, whether in the business world or investing world. Thank you very much, Professor. I really enjoyed this interview and appreciate the opportunity. Have a great day in New York and best of luck with your possibly third book. If it if it comes <laughs> out, you have to come on the podcast, all right? Thank, all right. Thank you, you very much. I appreciate that. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Climate Finance Podcast. For future episodes, please join our mailing list on www.climatefinance.xyz. I repeat, www.climatefinance.xyz. See you at the next episode.